0: Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. From time to time, churches and other groups hire me as a tent theologian to act as a sort of consultant, helping them think Christianly about whatever it is they're going through. St. Luke's Church in London hired me a few months ago to go through the Sermon on the Mount with them and I recorded a series of conversations with the vicar John and with other guests who came and joined our conversation from time to time they were kind enough to allow these recordings to be released on the podcast I hope you enjoy hearing them as much as we enjoyed making them
1: Joined by my good friend, Dr. Stephen Backhouse. Stephen, how are you? Hey, I'm good, man. I'm good. Here we are. We're in uh, Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount in this se- season 2 of Dig Deeper. And uh, the passage we got in front of us today uh, is Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. So if you've got it in front of you, uh, then do feel free to look it up. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, all the way through to verse 26 so i'm going to read it for us verse 17 jesus speaking this is from nt wright's new testament translation don't suppose that i came to destroy the law or the prophets i didn't come to destroy them i came to fulfill them i'm telling you the truth until heaven and earth disappear not one stroke not one dot is going to disappear from the law until it's all come true so anyone who relaxes a single one of these commandments, even the little ones, and teaches that the to people will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Yes, let me tell you, unless your covenant behavior is far superior to that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. You heard that it was said to the ancient people, You shall not murder, and anyone who commits murder shall be liable to judgment. But I tell you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Anyone who uses foul and abusive language will be liable to the law court, and anyone who says, You fool, will be liable to the fires of Gehenna. So if you're coming to the altar with your gift and you remember that your brother has a grievance against you, leave your gift right there in front of the altar and go first and be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and offer your gift. Make friends with your opponent quickly while you are with him in the street in case your opponent hands you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you find yourself being thrown into jail. I'm telling you the truth. You won't get out until you've paid every last copper coin. So what did you preach on? You said you preached on this. I did. I um, I mean, it was... Uh, is a whistle stop tour of the of the two two sections. You know, they, they there's two very clear sections here. No matter how it's subtitled or otherwise, there are these two sections. And yeah, I think the thing I liked about it is that the first section about the law and Jesus' role in fulfilling it, not abolishing it, kind of sets up the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, or at least the next kind of section, because it's like the other the other parts that follow are, are like case studies of how this works in practice,
0: yeah, that's yeah, this is like the uh agenda or the lens that's going to help you read the rest of it,
1: yeah. yeah i mean i uh I really enjoyed speaking about um the first section that kind of the fulfilling the law because I think there's what i what I wanted to speak into was this kind of tendency, particularly in kind of popular Christian culture to, to be people that like the words of Jesus but don't really kind of pay much attention to the rest. And um, you know, there's a lot of kind of red letter Christians out there that kind of, oh well, I don't really pay attention to the Old Testament. I don't really like that. The God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New. Right. Right. And um and I think what I like about it is that Jesus very clearly affirms and upholds the Old Testament or certainly the law and the prophets as it's described here. And so if we're going to take Jesus seriously as lots of people want to do um then you kind of also need to take the rest of it seriously as well so i really like the um like what that said about the law the law that jesus kind of spoke into but also that he doesn't just take it at face value but then as the case study in anger that i looked at then in the second part of my talk yeah um this you know he he isn't throwing out the law he says i'm fulfilling i'm bringing to completion it's like there's a kind of a there's a kind of eschatological element to which he's saying the whole of human history has been fulfilled in me right as as revealed in uh, in these ancient scriptures but i have come to fulfill it but it's not as you might think
0: Right. exactly so i was going to say like when he says oh i'm not going to change the law uh, in in one iota and then the very next breath he goes you have heard that it was said but i tell you (laughs) so how did you I, I mean, you said he very clearly affirms all the law in the province, and I don't think that's a true sentence. I don't think okay. he clearly does anything of that sort
1: okay well, i just he's it feels like it's like he's 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 in an environment where i mean it's inference but um where he's already being accused of essentially kind of throwing out right the old test you know he's you know a good rabbi, and he's trying to say well no i've not I've not come to um not come to abolish it but i have come to fulfill it um i i think what he was speaking against is 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 the the interpretation that it's ended up as it's kind of almost the you know the law is this but yeah. you're missing the heart behind it you know so right. when, when yeah. he talks about anger he's like you guys are just you know being you know to coin, coin a term pharisaical about the way you're just talking about murder and as long as you don't murder then everyone's fine but he's saying yeah. hang on it there's something dehumanizing about even anger that results in murder. Um, but that dehumanizing process starts with, with anger. So that's kind of the place I took. It's not that, that Jesus kind of brings it.
0: We have this uh, idea to, it's a false idea, but we have this idea that like the
1: Pharisees
0: were like fundamentalists and Jesus comes along and he, and he's a liberal and he liberates everybody. And actually it's kind of the opposite because in the, in the little, in the world that they were in, that he was working in, there was a whole sort of welter of extra, uh, of commentary and and law on top of the Moses canon, and in a way it was all kind of like, it was very easy to find an exception for yourself from the rule, so, or it would be like a whole big description of what, what constitutes murder, what constitutes accidental death, and, you know, if you, kill somebody on this time of the year it's murder but if you do it a different time of year it's whatever like there's a whole kind of like it was really easy to find a place where it's an exception to the rule yeah and, and exactly. this is going to come out really clearly with divorce as well so actually if anything it was a little bit more that pharisees of the pharisaical world the that was focused on on always talking about the law was kind of quote unquote liberal yeah because they were f- always able to f- say, well, this, the age, where we're at now, like, I know that's what happened then, but here we are right now. So what is the spirit of the age telling us right now? Yeah. Are we exempt from the from the law? And Jesus is, to hear Jesus speak, I think, was was more like hearing somebody saying, I know what it was like. Let me tell you how it was meant to be at the beginning kind of thing. Yeah. So rather than saying, well, I'm the latest word on the law, he's saying, I was the first word of the law, mm. which is not a phrase, that's not a way that Pharisees would normally act <laughs> around the law. So he isn't, but it isn't a straightforward, I would want to put some brakes on some of what you were saying there, because it isn't a straightforward endorsement, though, either of the law, because in fact, it's quite a radical, he, he really does kind of radically reinterpret or reframe some stuff that we yeah. would find, you know, and it's not just... When he says, like, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, he's not just referring to some of that extra stuff. I mean, he's referring to stuff in Deuteronomy, in Exodus, We are when you read the scriptures, it's like, and God said, dot, dot, dot. Mm. And Jesus comes along, he says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. So he is actually challenging. It's not just the sort of extra fluff that's accreted itself around the law he's actually addressing some pretty core stuff there yeah but he always does it not by saying oh it's not relevant to anymore he's like it's even more relevant than you thought it's even more super relevant like you said to the heart of it he goes straight to the heart yeah and
1: and even and even to some degree he's more extreme you know he pushes it even Uh, further you
0: know oh much further yeah
1: and and so, you know, so I kind of close my time on Sunday by saying, well, you know, let's look at actually, you know, for those of us that think the words of Jesus are always nice and lovey-dovey and fluffy and make us feel good, it's like right. let's just actually look at the words of Jesus here. <laughs> and says, right, so those of us who, have you know, treat someone with contempt, and those of us who say you're you fool, you know, you are not worthy of the purposes of God. Essentially, there's a place called Gehenna for you. You know that. that right yeah
0: yeah. The, the stakes are high for sure he's not a kind of a, oh everyone just look in your inner heart and everyone just do what's right for them yeah all paths lead to one god he doesn't actually that's not the kind of tone he's taking and he doesn't yeah. sound like that i don't think he doesn't feel like that to be around jesus yeah i mean he's not a street corner fundamentalist preacher either but it certainly he really is saying like i am the way the truth and the life yeah mm. And even in these, you know, that's actually a good way to sum up even what we've just read about, about the law. He, another way to say it would be the way the Gospel of John says it, which is, I am the way, the truth, and the life." Okay. Because even, even here he's saying, like, when he says, I haven't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it, what he means is, like, I'm fulfilling the law. He doesn't mean I'm going to follow the book really well, right? So he doesn't say, don't think I've come to abolish the law, but to obey it. He's not saying that. He's saying, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law. I have come to be the thing that the law was pointing towards. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's making it all about him. Yeah. Which by the way is idolatry. <laughs> if he's yeah. not actually God, that's a really bad thing he's just done. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean it's, it's, yeah, the- so
0: I wouldn't I wouldn't want to think that in this passage he's shining the light back onto the Hebrew scriptures as if he's saying, Don't look at me, just go read Deuteronomy. Yeah. Because he's not saying that; he's he's actually
1: saying the opposite. But what but what he's doing and what he causes us to do is is he we 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 need to view those scriptures through the lens of Jesus. Yeah, is that to to read to read the Old Testament without, you know, uh, Scott McKnight does this brilliant thing about how how you can read um, scripture. He talks about how you can read it. You can read it devotionally. Oh yeah, right you read devotionally, canonically, uh, historically, socio-pragmatically, I can't remember. Right. Yeah. It talks about all these different ways you read scripture, but essentially his point is unless you read through the lens of Jesus, unless you're looking through Jesus at those passages. Yeah. then you are always going to misread them. That doesn't matter whether you're going to read them historically or canonically or whatever. Right. Unless you read through the lens of Jesus, you're missing the point.
0: That's the, uh, the, uh, the theological term, the sort of, hundred pound term is christological hermeneutic this is the yeah this is the beginning of the i think we must have talked about that before but the christ lens you know the hermeneutic is just your technique for transit like what what color sunglasses are you wearing when you look at the world yeah your hermeneutic yeah so here he's like this is the the beginning of this development of like we're going to interpret everything Based on whether Jesus affirmed or didn't affirm it, or whether it's talking about Jesus or not. Yeah. Do you know I actually had a? Do you know did I tell you I'm I'm doing I'm making a series of podcasts with a rabbi right now? Did I ever tell you about that? No,
1: I didn't. I didn't know that.
0: So he's he actually got in touch with me. Um, we have a mutual friend. He's in Canada, and he is making a podcast about like. He said, "I want to talk with Christian. I want to ask a Christian all the things that Jews want to know, and I want the Christian to ask me anything that they want about Jews." And so. He's like a kind of an equivalent of a tent theology, but for Judaism. Okay. He's working in uh, Montreal. His name is is Avi Feingold is his name. And we instantly became friends. It was really fun. We had like an initial meeting and we we got along really well. And so now we started to record this podcast, which I think he's going to be released next week. I'm not sure. He's in charge. But one of the things we're doing is we, we actually did a little Bible study of this passage. Okay. To talk about it. And it was interesting because I read the thing about not a, not not one jot or tittle or not yeah. one iota will be removed from the law. And he see right away, he said, oh, that's an ancient, that's a reference to an ancient Jewish story.
1: Hmm.
0: And he told me this story. Have you heard this before? No. I don't, I don't have the exact details. It, but this was a, quite a few months ago that we talked about, it, so I'm kind of forgetting it. But he said it was, it, the, the story is that there was like two scribes and they were, Uh, there's one scribe that was like he loved the law so much that he was he would draw he would do every letter multiple times and he would he would add little curlicues and he would add like basically calligraphy right yeah and i think there was another scribe that just believed in just the straight letters and i think the angel of the lord shows up i might be getting the story wrong but it's like the angel of the lord shows up and he affirms the guy who's adding all his embellishments and the, the angel of the Lord says, you know, every jot and tittle, every little curly Q, I, I affirm that. And it, the idea is that the guy, the scribe loves the law so much that he just wants to to linger over it as long as possible. So he makes it he spends as much time as he can writing out each letter. Wow. And so he, so my friend said, oh, yeah, this is like in, that's an allusion to that story of of how much attention you're paying to the law it's not so much about the content of it because like all the little flourishes they're not adding to it but they are lingering over it yeah okay and there's so much attention spent on it so the idea is it sounds like Jesus is saying like I'm the scribe that's spending a lot of time looking really carefully at the law or really like looking so closely at it I'm almost going through it to the other side yeah, yeah. it's a good story right yeah the uh the angel of the lord affirming the scribe who loves Best scribbling one. and coloring it's like a coloring book
1: <laughs> yeah so jesus is obviously very pretty strong isn't he you know so anyone who relaxes a little one of these a single one of these commands even the little ones yeah and teaches that to people will be called least in the kingdom of heaven and and then he says and those that does them will be called great but note that he's a firm What he means is it's least of the laws that
0: he is now laying out. So he's affirmed. He's just told you, I've fulfilled the law. Yeah. So the great and the least are the people who are following Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's the way Jesus um, affirms or lays down the law. That's what we now are supposed to, if we have our Christ lens on, our Christ-colored sunglasses. Now Jesus is the one who's going to determine what's the least or the greatest.
1: So every time we almost see the word law, we need to just see Jesus first, don't we? Yeah. Kind of make sure that Jesus yeah. is the first thing we see when we see the word
0: law. But while you're right, it's not, it shouldn't just be like this kind of, oh, we don't need the Hebrew scriptures anymore. Why it shouldn't be that is that is that Jesus doesn't make sense unless you have the Hebrew scriptures. Like yeah. his whole conversation is about that, if that's what it's about so this is where the early christians totally got this they were like yeah it's it was actually one of the very first heresies this is something i talk about with my friends so do you know um uh, marcionite marcionism
1: yeah. yeah
0: so sort of early on in the church life i forget exactly when the first 100 years within 150 years of, of the church there was a a theologian preacher guy named marcion who decided like oh we don't need the hebrew scriptures at all because we just have jesus now and uh, not only that, like the Jewish faith is all about bodies and land, and it's all very sort of human, and that's not very good. Jesus is all about escaping your body and being you know airlifted as a spirit into heaven and all this kind of stuff. And so they basically the Martians were like, oh yeah, the the Jewish God is a bad God. He made the world, and the world is bad. And uh, we don't need the Hebrew scriptures anymore. And that became one of the first official heresies. Right. So the the church, in all its wisdom, said, no, calling Jewish scriptures evil is is a heresy Hmm. because Jesus was Jewish and everything he said was from the scriptures and everything he did was a comment on the scriptures. So, you know, for all that the Christian church is not exactly a shining light when it comes to anti-Semitism, it is interesting that one of the first ever heresies was was to say you're not allowed to say that Jews are bad and that the Old Testament is useless.
1: Yeah, well, particularly I, in, a, in a modern culture where we increasingly find the Old Testament, you know, unpalatable or, or whatever. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you know, the temptation is, like I said earlier, you know, to just be red-letter Christians. I'll just take the words of Jesus. So I don't really, can't really cope with right. in the Old Testament. Yeah, but it's interesting that that was the most that that could I, you can imagine. You know, that could have been one that. It's interesting that you know as as christians we don't practice we don't practice the jewish festivals or or right. rituals or anything like that so it, if they had wanted to they would have easily they could have easily just said well the scriptures aren't for us either that we don't have you know we don't have any need for them in the same way we don't have any need for all these other things that are are jewish festivals.
0: yeah but we don't so i mean very early on, including within the New Testament itself, Jewish Christians were saying, "We don't need to do some of this stuff. We don't need circumcision. We don't need to try and do sacrifices. We don't. Yeah. We don't need to obey feud laws." So yeah. very early on, Christians were saying there are parts of the law that are no longer applicable to us yeah. anymore. Yeah, and their reasoning was was because of this kind of thing. So they were like, "Well, because Jesus didn't affirm." Food and purity laws. He actually declared yeah. all things clean. Uh Jesus didn't keep separate from Gentiles. So neither will we, right? So that at every at every moment when they decided which parts of the law were or were not something that was applicable to them, they were using their Christ lens. They were like, Well, did Jesus affirm this? No. Okay, so we don't affirm it either. Yeah. So they weren't anti-law. To just say they were got rid of it is too simplistic, but they yeah. were they but they were definitely. Reimagining it
1: yeah but i guess what i'm saying is that they they would have they would they could have had every reason if they felt like the the old testament had all the you know the hebrew scriptures were no longer relevant at all yeah could have had every reason at that point to break with it and just oh yeah
0: exactly and they do not do that
1: and they don't which gives you even more reason why i don't
0: i don't i don't imagine i don't think there's a single page in any new testament book that doesn't quote the hebrew scriptures in some way yeah they definitely were not on a campaign to get rid of the hebrew scriptures whatever you want to say about the early church they definitely weren't
1: trying to get rid of the hebrew scriptures and indeed they do quote here um jesus does you've heard it said you shall not murder and anyone who commits murder shall be liable to judgment how do we read this passage on anger and murder
0: well i mean this is one of those interesting ones so this is like i was saying i think there's quite a lot of noise about what constitutes a murder and what's the difference between killing and murder and self-defense and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus just sort of cuts through the crap and he's, he goes straight for like, well, if you, if you're angry, if you hate somebody, I'm, I'm more interested in your heart than in your sort of parsing out all your different actions, right? Like it's more important that you, Wanted someone dead than even that you actually killed them or not. Like that's more important to me. Yeah, and so this is one of those things where he makes it. He sort of cuts through all of the legal definitions of murder, and at the same time he makes it sort of he heightens the importance of it. Yeah, and then he uses this word. So he, what what was your translation for the for the
1: word raka verse twenty two? Well, in the one I used on on Sunday, interestingly, it didn't try and translate it. The Aramaic word. What does Tom Wright say? Which verse are
0: we in? Verse. Whoever says Raka to his brother shall be liable. Who is
1: angry? Just says who is angry, right? And then, and then it says anyone who uses foul and abusive language. I mean, in the commentaries that I read in preparation for my talk, it talks about you know language that shows contempt for somebody. Yes, else. yeah.
0: I think I felt like Tom Wright was a little bit too general there, too vague. Yeah. You know the so the word Raka, which doesn't get often doesn't get translated on purpose because it's kind of untranslatable. I think. It's an Aramaic word, but it it's not so much getting. So I think sometimes people translate it as like, you fool or you empty head. But I think this is one of those times when you've got to think about what did it feel like to hear it rather than yeah. the literal translation. So it's not like, as long as you never call somebody a fool, you're fine. <laughs> That's not the point. Yeah. It's like the word raka was a bit like, well, pardon my French, but it'd be like calling somebody a piece of shit. Right? It's like a. An utter kind of worthlessness. It's like, oh, ah, yeah. you you mean nothing. Like you yeah. are nothing. Yeah. And so that's the attitude. It's kind of like don't don't emotionally wipe somebody off the face of the earth. Yeah. That's what Jesus is getting at here. It's like don't just dismiss somebody completely from your yeah. from your existence.
1: Well, I think the thing that I was reflecting on um was that when we when we're angry at somebody and we get caught in that kind of frame of mind, like you said, the kind of, you know, the English equivalent of racco, whatever that might be.
0: Yeah.
1: What we're doing is we are, we are dehumanizing somebody. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that is so, that grieves God so much because, you know, to de- take away that which is the image of God in somebody else, you know, so the dehumanized yeah. isn't just saying they are no longer human. That would be bad enough. But it's also to deny that which God created. It's to say, you know, God created them, everybody in the image of God. And so to to express yeah. that kind of contempt is to take that away from somebody. It's to say they are no longer, as I view them, lo- you know, known, loved, created in the image of God. And that's that's what I think is why Jesus speaks so strongly about it.
0: Yeah, you're right. That that image of God. I mean, I personally find this really hard because I, I, I like so much to just find the one word or the one judgment I can do that just sums up somebody and then just kind of lay it on them and then get rid of them and not, never have to think of them ever again. Like, I'd love to do that. And that's totally my temptation, right, is to find that just the right judgment, which sums everything up. And then I, I get to dismiss you from my life yeah and uh, yeah like this is really this is jesus totally telling (laughs) not to do that because it's really addictive you really love being able to just do a house clearance and get rid of everybody that's bugging you and yeah say you're dead to me that'd be the idea like you're dead to me you know yeah well
1: and then we have that don't we in that picture of in the prodigal son you know you're dead to me you know right
0: yeah right that would be the attitude also, pay attention to this uh, Gehenna, to the, the danger of the fires of Gehenna. Did we talk about this last week? I can't remember.
1: Yeah, I think you mentioned the, the, the valley of um, where all the waste was brought. Right.
0: And just remember that it's, I think it has a connotation or a feeling of a place of utter worthlessness, to be utterly worthless. To be thrown into Gehenna just means that your life is utterly worthless, right? And so notice that the pairing here is, don't say to somebody, you are utterly worthless, or you yourself. Yeah. will be in the place of utter worthlessness right yeah. there's the it's the pairing there yeah it's not a lake of eternal fire yeah it's the place it's, of utter worthlessness
1: but in the passage we've got two separate things that jesus warns us about one is to be, use contemptible language for somebody dismiss them yeah. uh but then he also adds in and and for them the judgment is to go to court yeah uh, But then this other thing, and Tom Wright does translate it here, you fool, anyone who says you fool um, will be liable to the fires of Gehenna. And again, the kind of understanding I got from that is that those that were considered fools were those that were those that had chosen rebellion against God.
0: Oh, okay. That makes
1: sense. It was less about, it's like you are no longer worthy, even of God's respect, because you yourself have chosen the yes. idiocy of turning against God, and so right, and, so, and
0: that would be one of these. The measure you use will be the measure used against you, kind of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and, and, and there's this a, there's this element to which you know when we say you fool, it's because we have perceived to somebody in the religious terms anyway that they they are in willful rebellion against God, and so we essentially become judge.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: and and so the the kind of consequence for us as those who judge is to face our own judgment in Gehenna
0: yeah and also also it's one of those things where it's not really like i think we need to i'd like to get us to stop thinking about it as a punishment at the in the afterlife it's not a punishment in the afterlife it's like jesus says it later on if you live by the sword you'll die by the sword or the phrase that we you're going to lie if you make your bed you'll lie in it right it's that kind of phrase so he's yeah. he's not saying like if you go through life Um, judging people and calling them worthless then one day when you die you might find that you yourself are now judged he's not saying that what he's saying is if you go through life putting yourself as as a judge and declaring people worthless you have now created the world in which that is going to happen to you right like you have removed yourself from that web of relationships where people are together and trying to work together So you've set yourself apart. And now by setting other people apart, you've set yourself apart. And now you are also the worthless one. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like this kind of uh, be good um, so that you don't go to hell. It's don't live a life that is in such a way that it leads to to the same judgment that you're putting on will be put back to you. Right.
1: Yeah. So um question come in as we talk right now which is obviously leads to the question around you know when when jesus is talking about gehenna and judgment and so on is that hell yeah the whole thing about hell you know it's not not a popular subject it's um not something that we hear very often except in maybe certain kind of fire and brimstone kind of contexts.
0: yeah i mean some people love it i mean i think i've told you before like jesus talks about something like hell maybe eight times in all the gospels. Yeah. It talks about the kingdom two hundred times. So yeah, yeah. I don't think well, first of all, I don't think the word hell is the right I mean it isn't he doesn't talk about hell. That's an Anglo Saxon word, which was applied to there's multiple different places in the Bible. I think I've told you this before, right? There's Sheol, there's Hades. Yeah, that's right. There's all these different places and they all do slightly different things, right? And Uh, there's the pit that's reserved for satan and all his minions and all that's happened is the anglo-saxon word hell has just been applied to every single one of these different things and a lot of the time jesus is actually talking about the realm of the dead so hades for example is the realm of the dead Mm -hmm. not the place of punishment it's the place of the dead and everybody goes to hades when they die according to greek mythology And Jesus, so when he comes along and he says to Peter, I'm going to give you the gate, the keys to this kingdom, to my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against you. He's talking about the realm of the dead. He's talking Mm -hmm. about the fear of death. But of course we Anglo-Saxonized Christians, we go, oh, he's talking about hell. Yeah. Yeah. And there's demons flying around. It's like, no, we
1: have the the kind of Victorian picture of,
0: yeah, we, we got to be careful here. And it doesn't mean that you're saying there's no such thing as this. You're just saying, no, we've got to pay attention to what, which is why the responsible translators like Tom Wright and like my guy, Bentley Hart, they don't actually translate the veil of Gehenna or the Valley of Gehenna. Yeah. They don't call it hell. They leave it as the Valley of Gehenna because Jesus isn't talking about a lake of fire with demons yeah. poking sinners with pitchforks. He's not talking about that.
1: Yeah. Well, it's in a bit like the raka being left in there. Actually, sometimes yeah. the w- wisdom is to kind of almost in some ways to make it less easy in terms of our own understanding so that we actually journey in the translation work of, yeah. of understanding the text rather than just kind of lazily kind of, oh, we well, write hell here. And yeah. everyone just jumps to what they already think.
0: Like an exercise in seeing old things with fresh eyes. Like you almost... You need to be reminded that this is not an English word <laughs> and you yeah. need to, it's good to be reminded, yeah. So I mean, idea. but the question did, did ask, does hell exist or what is hell? You know, I th- I, th- I think there's a lot of, that's a big conversation that people can be having, but it's perfectly legitimate. I This is where I'm standing. It's very perfectly legitimate to talk about it, about it in terms of annihilation or people just getting what they want. Right. Rather than eternal conscious torment.
1: Right.
0: And uh, I think the eternal conscious torment idea is one that has developed through Roman Catholic medievalism. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. For reasons outside of the New Testament uh, or the Old Testament. The Old Testament certainly doesn't have it. And the New Testament doesn't either. Yeah. So, you know, I don't. Yeah, I don't think I think we can talk about places of destruction or places of annihilation or places of utter worthlessness. Yeah. And I think we can talk about hell being um, situations that we create with our actions. Now, like our organized rebellion against the way of God creates yeah. hell.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, mean no. I generally kind of, when I, when people talk to me, you know, about what, what I think hell is, I mean, I generally go with, well, let's start with what it's not. It's not where God is. Yeah. And so you think, well, what are the things that God gives us life, love, Relationships, peace, joy—you know—all those things are absent from whatever that might be. Now, if, if it's absence of life, and God is the source of life, then that would then follow that hell, whatever that is, is annihilation. You know. So, I
0: mean, Bentley Hart famously uh, wrote a, a really interesting book called "All Shall Be Saved," and I mean, he's he's uncovered his argument is that actually the earliest church the earliest church fathers and stuff, they actually believed in a kind of a universal salvation eventually for okay. everything. He doesn't even like annihilationism. Like yeah. he's like, he's gone so far the other way that he says, no, all shall be saved. Everything will be redeemed. Yeah. You know, And it will go through a time of purification and this kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and sometimes it might feel like hell to people who are resisting God's love. But you know, I mean, his book is, is interesting. It's worth reading because it's, it's, it's rooted in like ancient, Early church thinking; it's not really based on like modern interpretations of stuff.
1: It's, it's yeah, well, a lot of it is um looking at Paul's letters in the Romans, for example, and the, you know how you in a conversation around Romans nine to eleven around what do we what do we think is happening when he talks about salvation? When he talks about Israel? When he talks about yeah, Israel, right. what's being caught up in these terms? Well, but,
0: we've got, back to us here. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Yeah. So remember that the the Sermon on the Mount is a rule of. It's the rule of God for the people of God. Yeah. Just like Moses and his 10 commandments and the law is the rule of God for the people of God. Now Jesus comes along and says, well, the people of God looks slightly different than you thought they looked.
1: Yeah.
0: And the rule of God also looks slightly different than you thought it looked.
1: Yeah.
0: And so he's saying like, be with me, do what I do. This is the way to live. And if you don't live this way, it's like you're living outside of the kingdom of God. Yeah. So if the kingdom of heaven is now, well, the kingdom of hell is also now.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah.
0: And and, he's, and here he's giving rules for the kingdom of heaven. He's like, this is what it looks like. And if you don't do it, it's like you're living in the kingdom of hell. Yeah. If you want to use Anglo-Saxon words. <laughs>
1: yeah. I think uh, one of the things that I really like about how we read the Sermon on the Mount is what, again, Scott McKnight talks about, like, actually the Jesus Creed, the kind of fundamental commandment. Right. You know, talking about the commandments is this love, love, the Lord, your God with all your, you know, your heart, mind, soul and strength. Love your neighbors. You love yourself. That's the kind of fundamental commandment that we, we're called to live. Um, and the Sermon on the Mount is is the meat on the bones of that. This is how we go about loving God and loving one another yeah. is, is to follow this way of living. So he doesn't just say. Don't be angry or. No. Yeah. But he says. And this yeah. is how you go about it. This is what reconciliation looks like.
0: So yeah, that's really good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. He's not just saying don't. He's saying this is what it looks like to do the Yeah. Altar. Yeah. yeah hey, so- I like this reconciliation business that he's talking about. Like this thing about the if you bring your gift to the altar, yeah. right? Like, all right. So the altar is, by the way, the place of forgiveness, right? Like that's just 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 point that out. Like that's the only reason you're at the altar, it's to be forgiven. So more, it's the business of forgiveness. Yeah. So when you bring your gift to the business of forgiveness, and then he says, recall, and you recall that your brother holds something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled. Right. We just skate over this so quickly. I mean, have you noticed what's kind of odd about that
1: instruction? Well, I mean, I I made this point on Sundays that actually it's the reconciliation begins with the person who feels something, something has got something against them.
0: Yeah. It's not when you're standing at the altar and you think of all the things that your brothers have done against you. It's like when you stand at the place of forgiveness, see the way I naturally want to do right is I want to add a list of all the people who have wronged me. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, and then I'm going to go through the process of like, okay, I forgive you. I forgive you, George. I forgive you, Tom. I forgive you, Carol. Right. And Jesus isn't saying that he's not saying make up a list of all the things people have done against you and then forgive them. He's like, really search yourself and think have you pissed anyone off then go and reconcile to that like it's the complete opposite of what i would be tempted to do yeah think does your brother hold something against you and then there's this extravagant thing you're supposed to leave your gift at the altar and go and reconcile and it's and the idea is here is like it's one of these exaggerations because you wouldn't leave your gift like it's meant to show you how uh What a big deal it must be. He's just saying this is how important reconciliation is. It's a bit like I was talking to somebody about this. I said, I think it's a bit like um, when you sit down with your family on Christmas morning and you've got all your gifts in front of you and you're about to unwrap them. And then you realize somebody has something against you. Leave your gifts and leave your family and leave the Christmas tree and go over to that person's house and ask for forgiveness and then come back and open your gifts with your family. Right. I think it's kind of feels like hearing him say that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, we talk a lot about being reconciled to God, you know, it's important that we're, you know, we come every, every week before God and we kind of make our peace as it were. But what this says is you can't really do that without having been reconciled to others as well. Like if you, it goes back to that passage, you know, one, you know, think how many times you've been forgiven you know, and go and offer, you know, you can't receive forgiveness until you, you yeah. yourself have forgiven other people. You know, there is this real mandate to actually for human beings to be sorting their stuff out before they go to God and be at peace with him. And also
0: the idea is that, you know, when Jesus says in Matthew, like later, because later on, he's going to say, if you don't, for- well, actually, even in the sermon, you know, if you don't forgive, then God won't forgive you. Yeah. Or in, in later on in Matthew, he'll talk about, like, if you are if you forgive, then they will be forgiven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And I've heard it described as, it's not like this kind of eternal judgment saying, I refuse to forgive you. It's more like, well, what does forgiveness look like, except when you are reconciled with each other? That is forgiveness. Like God's, so the the guy described, he said, like if, if you're in a church and you've decided to eject somebody from your church community, Uh, and you decided not to forgive them, and they are literally physically outside the door, banging on the door, asking to be let back in, the neighbors will look at you and go, oh, I guess they haven't forgiven that guy, right? It's very sort of physical. But then if you open the door and let him in, then he is forgiven indeed. And Hmm. it's kind of like, well, that's what forgiveness is. It's not like there's some sort of mystical, magical thing. It's kind of like, well, forgiveness looks like reconciliation between people. Yeah, okay. And if you don't do reconciliation between people, then you're not forgiven. Yeah. Because that's what it is. If you forgive on earth, that's like being forgiven in heaven.
1: I think one of the challenges with this, isn't it, is that relationships quite aren't quite as neat and tidy as that. And so reconciliation, right. often there's so much hurt that has gone on between people. Yeah, usually, right. Usually kind of made worse by anger. And so you kind of I think often you kind of you're in a you know that there's a brokenness in the relationship and you're thinking well they may not want me to come knocking on their door asking for forgiveness even um, yeah, yeah I
0: know
1: or yeah or even, or even to be like actually I feel like they've wronged me but they are pretty stubborn about the fact they've not they've not they don't really admit it and they don't want to admit it and so I'm no. like I there's a desire to be reconciled but how far that can go when it requires both sides, right? It requires both sides. Yeah. And
0: I mean, obviously, this is like a a kind of an i. It's not an ideal. I don't mean like in an idealistic way, but I mean, it, it, he's presenting the the carrot, not the stick. He's saying this is how it could look for all of yeah. us. Yeah. Um. So he's giving the best examples rather than the worst. And so from my point of view, I feel like we could all at one time be the brother who is offended. Yeah, or the brother who offended. others. Yeah. So, if if one day you ring me up out of the blue, and you say, "Stephen, uh, I wonder whether I, I need to reconcile with you." Hopefully, my imagination is being shaped by the by the Sermon on the Mount to such an extent that I go, "Oh crap! It's my turn now to be the one." Like he's chasing after me to be reconciled, so I better start acting like i can let me recognize what john is trying to do he's yeah. trying to yeah act the sermon on the mount yeah. so i need to be in a position to receive that and then yeah. at another time it might be me who's knocking on your door and and wanting to pursue reconciliation so hopefully if we're minds are all being shaped by the sermon on the mount we're all going to start to recognize when reconciliation starts to happen around us and we will participate in it
1: yeah Right. Yeah, and and in a culture that we li- live in right now, which is so divided and so polarized, and I mean, I was reading an article. It's actually a Tim Keller article recently. Just um, I can't remember the title of it. It's kind of something like the lost art of forgiveness. In that right. we live in a culture now which is actually more concerned about du- digging up the past and holding that against people. Right. Yeah. Um, then it is about showing mercy grace forgiveness and so on you know it's right. It, yeah right where i think um there's a book called uh so you've been publicly shamed by john ronson. Oh, john ronson yeah 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 and he talks about the, the, the actually the shame culture that we're in now is all about making sure people feel shamed yeah. um, by something they did or didn't do or they m- misspoke or and because we live in a you know a internet age everything is kind of captured forever and it's yeah you know so you got these cricketers at the moment that aren't you know that are being told that they can't be in the cricket team anymore because of tweets that they sent when they were 16 or 18 doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's appropriate what they did but we don't live in a world anymore that can hold that well and say this was this was that was then and and even them saying i'm sorry that was an idiot thing idiotic thing for me to do at the age of you know 18 that's not enough people still want their kind of pound of flesh or you know whatever it is and um yes it's it's, what's interesting about this but these all these passages is that both the example around anger and the kind of things that you say to one another and the example around reconciliation are both familial in the sense that they are both your brother and there is i wonder there's also an expectation there this isn't just people that someone cuts you up in traffic although it's probably a good idea probably not to um swear at them either no but exactly. this is actually this is about what happens when familial relationships within the church
0: yeah this is the rule of the, of god for the people of god this is for the and the word brother and uh, akim it, it means brother and sister it can it even yeah. means um uh, uh, blended family actually but mm-hmm. the idea is that it's like uh it isn't meant to be the rule of law for the whole country okay it's not meant to be the thing that applies to everybody at all places and all times it's like if you call yourself a follower of me this is how i want you to act
1: yeah yeah and and
0: i think we lose sight of that a lot so the the people of god are the ones that are meant to be seeking this kind of ridiculous reconciliation and i don't even know if it's possible to have forgiveness or reconciliation without relationship like it what are you reconciling if there's no relationship what are you reconciling right yeah I do think there is a difference. psychologically, there we there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And I know Jesus is talking about them both happening here, but it is possible to to forgive somebody and not be reconciled
1: to them. yeah, I mean, just even the simple example of somebody who's now since died, yeah, exactly. you know you can still yeah forgive. and there are
0: people there are people. We have people in our lives. I have people in my life for whom, Forgiveness is something I have to have towards them, but they are still toxic people and I should not be in a relationship with them, right? But I need to not be calling them raka in my heart.
1: Yeah. Right. And then she goes on, of course, to say, pray for your enemies. Exactly. So you aren't just left with forgiveness, but you're left with praying. And and hopefully that in turn softens their hearts that there may there may be a journey towards reconciliation. But it is
0: worth pointing out here. So this isn't a blanket statement of like you must always reconcile to absolutely everybody at all the time. It's you should reconcile to your brother and sister, right? You see that, right? Like this is that, that's what's going on here. So it isn't a kind of a, just go out into the world and get involved in all sorts of harebrained activities and just reconcile yourself to absolutely every enemy, even if you have no relationship with them. It's like with your brother and your sister, those are the ones you are extravagantly seeking to reconcile with yeah and if you are being pursued for reconciliation then you need to recognize that as well
1: yeah
0: and then and then right at the end i mean we i know we're at the end but uh i just want to point out that that often uh often a, a trick that modern day christians do because we're so addicted to this idea of private life and public oh, life yeah. that we um we say all oh, the sermon on the mount is just for your private inner life and it's it's not for your public world i'd like to point out that that's um that's ridiculous <laughs> i'm not going to use the word that i really think it is uh, <laughs> jesus brings up public attitudes and actions and institutions all the time and here he does it he's talking very specifically about the law courts and the public you know apparatus yeah conflict resolution and he's like don't avail yourself of that yeah because that world will it'll get it'll do to you what it does right yeah so he's he's very much recognizing that we are playing out our corporate existence our we're in a relationship existence the kingdom of god and we're doing it in a world that has other forms of life that do things differently yeah and he's saying i want you to publicly do something
1: different so we're going to close it there stephen thank you so much uh, a lot to talk about a lot to think about stephen thank you for a great week thanks john that was fun
0: Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.